Our reading for today is taken from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 21. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native tongue? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let us go to the Lord our God in prayer. Father God, here we come before your word this morning. Speak life into us. Give life to us through the power of your word, through the power of your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know that feeling you get when you're put into a an overwhelming situation, maybe you've been assigned a task or you know you're about to walk a road, you don't know how you're going to walk, and... And often in those moments, it's hard to kind of take that first step to, to, and just, you just kind of hand yourself over to despair at the enormity of the moment. You just want to surrender. There is a photo at the front of the bulletin, the top one, and unfortunately it didn't come out all that clearly, but it was of one such moment I'm referring to. It was a storm two years ago. It was the picture of the sunrise the morning after. You can see the tree that had broken in half as it hit the church. Part of it is in Luann's parking spot, the rest of it draping the front of the church. And of course, that moment 
was an overwhelming moment. It, it actually began for me. I was with the Kratz family. My family was with the Kratz family at the Phillies game. And the Phillies game was on a rain delay. And all of a sudden, I start getting texts. First, I think, from Sandy. Are you all right? Are you okay? We're worried about you and the weather. And the first thing that comes to my mind is, first off, how does everybody know I'm at the Phillies game? <laughs> I didn't realize there were so many baseball fans in our congregation. You know, news travels fast in small uh, churches, right? And so I'm just going, yeah, I'm fine. I think they're going to start the game in a couple minutes here again. And then, of course, as more texts continue to pour in, it became clear. No, no, there, there was a situation. The church got hit by a tornado. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. One of the great things uh, that happened is I had to pause. I was in my final classes in seminary uh, for my Master's in Divinity, and I had to call the, uh, the registrar and say, I have a crazy thing to tell you, but can I can I have a refund or an extension on the classes I'm in? You're not going to believe this, but the church I'm serving at got hit by a tornado, and she goes, actually, that's happened to a church I've been at. So (laughs) I was like, oh, great, great. So she gave me an extension. This is a text that really begins with people needing courage to take that next step. And it's a text where it shows that God blesses us in such moments where we don't know what to do. In the passage today, Jesus has just recently left his followers and he's giving them, given them nothing short of an amazing request, an amazing job before he ascended into heaven. He asks them to go through the ends of the earth, sharing the good news of Christ And yet they hear these words and they return to Jerusalem and they worship there. And so Acts chapter 1 ends with this group of roughly 120, as we learn in Acts chapter 1, followers of Jesus who've been told to go throughout the world and yet they're still kind of huddled together. In one sense, they're stalling as the day of Pentecost arrives. Now, Pentecost was the middle festival of three festivals in the Jewish calendar. The first festival we know well, it was the Passover. That was the the feast of the unleavened bread. Jesus, of course, 50 days earlier from this moment, had just changed the Passover meal to no longer be focused on a people delivered from a wicked Pharaoh, but a Savior who has delivered us from sin and death itself. And now they are at the middle festival, and Pentecost kind of celebrated when the, the grain harvest had come in, and now it was time to go gather the fruit, get the, the fruits, the olives, the things that help complement the bread. And, so, and even the name Pentecost actually in the Greece, Greek means the 50th, so the 50th day after Passover. And so there is a sense in which Jews are and were the first harvest of God's followers. They are the grain harvest. And the Christian church, the New Testament believer, who believes in the risen Christ, however, 
We are sons and daughters of the second harvest, a harvest that begins here in this passage at Pentecost. We are the fruits of that. And how did the New Testament church's harvest begin? It began with a, a sound from heaven. The first, a mighty rushing wind. In the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel actually foreshadows this moment. He sees a a valley of dry bones and it's through the Spirit of God, the wind of God, that these lifeless dead bones come to life and they get animated once again. And that's what's happening here. The rushing of the Holy Spirit gives the power of new life from God within us. A wind from heaven. And this was good news because this was an ancient world where, and still even in our modern world, I have to watch because I do have doctors sometimes watch from Colorado, and uh, if I start speaking medically, like I accidentally said melatonin instead of melanin last in a sermon previously, I get corrected shortly there after the service. So Adam, you weren't first. Um, but yes, but there's a sense in which we still see that moment of death is that final giving up of our last breath. That final passing away, that last exhale. And yet here are people that are alive. Here are people that are animated and a new breath comes into them. A breath that comes from God himself. And that breath comes from the place of heaven that is everlasting. And so that breath will never fail them. It's enduring If we remember how God breathed life into our first father, Adam, he breathed life into him by breathing into his body. And now through the new Adam, the second Adam, Jesus, there is a sense in which while we might appear dead to the world as we give that final exhale, don't believe it for an instant. If you are a spirit-given believer, don't believe it for an instant because he has given you a life that will continue through death. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are made to know death is not the end. One of the amazing things I continue to see happen over and over and over again through ministry is the fact that God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, makes believers ready to go. He really does. The vast majority of people I've encountered in ministry and watched them take the step from this life into the next, He makes them ready to go. He reminds us He reminds so many of us before we pass on in death, I've given you a breath of life that will never fail you. Do not worry. Do not fear. This is something that must happen. This is something that must take place. But I will take care of you. You will continue to have the peace that I give to you. We never need to fear death again due to the hope of Pentecost, due to what we witness even in these verses, that there is a God, God is within us, and he assures us that he never will forsake us. Those of us who believe in him in spirit and in truth. So while all of us who die in faith might have to take that final breath, and, and maybe God has not yet made us ready, we're not looking forward to that moment, remember, God will make you ready. If he has breathed life into you. And then the Holy Spirit is also shown as fire. Now fire is something, sort of a double-edged sword in scripture. But actually more often, 
It's really seen as a source of life. You think of how God even presents himself to Moses. It's as a burning fire. You you would use fire to cook. You would use fire to prepare things. You would use fire in order to purify things. Uh, Fire gives you warmth. It's life-giving. And so this fire coming on the tongue is in one sense a symbol that their tongues are filled with life. The power of life. Here, this tiny congregation, the first congregation of the New Testament church of 120, had been fairly lifeless thus far when it came to fulfilling the mission of God. Even the one administrative decision we see in Acts chapter 1 is them picking somebody to replace Judas. And how do they do it? They draw light, lots. Now, I want you to think for a moment. We just hear had uh, Rob and Bruce Stocking come up to join the consistory. What if the consistory had told you, all right, good news, we're going to put Bruce and Rob on the consistory, and we came to this decision by a really wild craps dice game. You know, a heartache came up, and so that meant Bruce Stocking joined us, and a a soft 17, I have no idea, but, you know, a soft 7, 17 can't come up, a soft (laughs) 7... You know, came up and that meant Rob was Rob was also our guy. You're like, how are you coming to these decisions? These are awful. They needed a life that came from God that was within them. Even if you compare it to the the experience at Sinai for the followers of Israel, they were all afraid of the fire on the mountain. They needed a fire that kindled within. That made them and drew them closer to God. We need to trust that fire too. You know, just yesterday, um, at 10.30 at night, I decided to delete my entire sermon. And I told my wife when I did it. I didn't like the first rendition. It just, it seemed so lifeless. And so I deleted it all. And here I was staring at this blank page in this passage where we're at. And I didn't know where to make heads or tails of where to begin when it came to this passage. And I, and I just was failing to trust God in that moment. I was failing to trust the God of Pentecost who breathes life into the proclaiming of his word to the sharing of Jesus Christ. And I know you too, sometimes all of us, we have these moments where we want to doubt the power of the life-giving power of God. And we really need to fight against that. Pentecost gives us a reason to fight against it. The Lord is able to accomplish amazing things through simple people who would be lost without him. And this fire of God, as we see in verse 4, it's now allowed 120 members of this first congregation of Christians to speak a great litany of languages. Now let me add a quick aside here. When When we talk about the gift of tongues... Um, there are times and there are people who have taken this passage and kind of taken it out of context. This is an inauguration kind of moment. This is a unique breakthrough. This is really one of the high points of sacred scripture. What's going on here is not, hey, I won't have to study a language if I have enough faith. Uh, There actually was a denomination in America that for a while started sending their missionaries out to foreign lands without any language Uh, being learned by them, 
uh, they quickly realized that was a bad idea and had to start bringing him back. God's doing something unique in this moment, but there is a, a greater point of application that we all share in. There is a sense in which God has given all his believers the gift of tongues if they so choose to use it. And the real gift of tongues is that our words can give the fire of life to those who are dead without Jesus. Our words can help breathe into people new life through Jesus that they would not have and can't have without Jesus. Even this sermon by Peter is so centered and saturated in talking about Jesus. Whether woman or man, the gospel itself can bring someone who was dead to life. And you can be a part of that by giving the gift of fire to them. But also let me say that what Acts is also telling us here. It's that through the power of God, we can get through to anyone, any barrier, in order to accomplish God's life-giving goals for the world. And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is this. We all have people on our list of who we want to really grow to love the Lord. We really do. Maybe some of them are, are close. Maybe they're, they're teetering on it. Maybe some others, they just seem so far off and we give ourselves up to ever believing that God can cut through to them, that we can say a word that might cut through. But let me tell you, believe in lost causes because you believe in the power of Pentecost. I know of deathbed conversions. I've seen them. I know of prostitutes and drug dealers being saved. I have seen them. I know of thieves and murderers being saved. I have seen them. I know of drunkards and those being drugged out being saved. I have seen them having their life changed in life-giving, miraculous ways, in a snap of a finger, in a blink of an eye. I've seen the power of God, the remarkable power of God, who can change people in an instant. And so never let us grieve the Holy Spirit in such a way that we doubt the fact that He loves to give words that can cut through and might reach those we doubt we're even able to reach. The fact that God took this rule collection of Galileans and turned them into our model for great evangelists in the New Testament is supposed to inspire us all. By the end of the first sermon of Peter on this first day of Pentecost, the saving message of Christ has already made landfall on three continents. Basically, all the regions around the Mediterranean are accounted for, the major regions of the area, because, it, because there was a great variety in the city for Pentecost. And so that should inspire us all to great courage when it comes to sharing the life of Jesus Christ with others. Which leads me to another point this morning about the life-giving power of God. We live in a world that often says, you have to lose part of your cultural identity to become one of us. For instance, don't you want to believe in Islam? Some might say. Well, all right then, you better learn Arabic. If you don't learn Arabic, you can't really know Islam. And really, by that religion, you kind of have to embrace this Middle Eastern culture of the early 800s AD. 
Additionally, there are similar parallels in other world religions, such as Hinduism. Really, to fully be Hindu, you kind of have to embrace the culture of India. Uh, it's, it's a large part of the religion, or even Buddhism has some of these elements to it. In order to become one of them, you need to learn a specific language, a specific culture, and a specific region of the world. Christianity has no interest in such demands upon its people. Yes, Christianity will change followers and they'll become uniform in certain ways, but it wants its followers to remain appreciative of their cultural and ethnic differences. Christianity stands out as the world's best way to magnify and embrace the, the, world's, the cultural differences that we share and still maintain harmony in those differences. God loves the dynamic plurality of nations and ethnic groups breathing a healthy degree of, of their uniqueness into our, in our group, our collection. So we Christians really need to push back on closed-minded views that say certain cultures can never really find peace with one another. You know, the ideas that say when we boil it all down, there are just oppressors and oppressees. That there is no common ground of peace possible. We can't embrace that idea because of moments like Pentecost. As verses 17 and 18 make clear, when Peter prophesies the Old Testament passage of Joel, that the wealthy and the servant, the slave, were a part of that prophecy and, and heard and came together in unity. That's why passages like this one made the Christian worldview the first one in world history to argue slavery in all forms is wrong in this world. Because the true Christian spirit abhors segregation and the differentiation of people. God sets our tongues on fire and we need to have courage to put to use, put them to use for his namesake. Even when we think our differences are too far to cross over. But even more than that, do you really believe the most popular philosophies currently in our public square could find the kind of unity that would bring about people from three continents, like we see in our text today, in a mere sermon. So much of our modern cultural culture is segregationist in its thought. It feasts off division. It feasts off allowing people to believe they're isolated or victimized or oppressed. It feasts not on of building community, but setting communities against one another. It loves political extremes, emphasizing one over the other and against the other. And it, allows, it loves decisions based on feeling rather than sound, principled wisdom. God values his image in all people. Much of what is popular thought today is nothing more than a full frontal assault on the type of unity on the type of harmony that God helped usher in at Pentecost that can bring together the nations. Only Christianity can get so through to such a variety of cultures and socioeconomic backgrounds and link them together because it embraces the idea that God will come for you in your culture and your community and link you to people different from yourself. It gives us that expectation. Christianity at its best loves variety. 
It understands we are a part of the harvest of the fruit. We are, and a good fruit harvest has variety within it. I've seen just a, just a hammer this point home one more time. One of the most tragic things I have seen over the last couple of years is I have seen Christian families who have adopted children of different ethnic and cultural backgrounds believe that they now have committed sin because they are listening to the segregationist thought of our culture and society. And it's heartbreaking. And it's a message against the gospel. And it's a message against Pentecost. And it's a message against unity. And it's a message of division. And it's a message that comes from the pit of hell. And we don't need to embrace it. We can reject it. I think of even my marriage to my wife, and I won't get too far into this, but our backgrounds and our upbringings and our family situations and our family structures and our family dynamics were so diverse and so different. We had quite a few people before we got married say to us, you should never be together. You're never going to work. You're never going to find a unity that will last. And every time we got such advice, it was godless. And it knew nothing of the God of Pentecost. The God who unifies people from different cultures, different backgrounds, and brings them together in harmony. It truly is a terrible thing to embrace an idea of segregation. No true disciple of Jesus really can embrace such a thing. God loves unity. And if you have any doubt that he loves unity, just look at who he has gives this sermon. You know, out of all the disciples that would become an apostle, Peter was the worst of them. He really was. He had betrayed God most boldly. And it really, you know, if he was... If Jesus worked on our kind of understanding, you know, even if you wanted to save Peter, you know, make him like Bartholomew, you know? The guy we really don't know is an apostle unless we're memorizing who the apostles were. You know, just make him like the dustpan of history. But that's not what our God does. Our God is a bridge builder. Our God seeks unity. Our God seeks forgiveness. And so our God reaches out to Peter, and in his resurrection at the end of the Gospel of John, not only restores Peter, but God blesses Peter with the first sermon of the New Testament church. God loves unity. God loves rescue stories. God loves redemption stories. So let us not fall for lesser narratives. And by the way, Notice that even though God granted Peter the high honor of the first New Testament sermon to preach, he still allowed scoffers to be there. We all would do better to be a little more comfortable when we're sharing Jesus with others, to be prepared for scoffers and understand that's okay. And yet Peter still had the courage because his tongue had been set on fire. The Lord had breathed life into him to share that life with others. And so we too need to be so motivated. 
He knew the saving breath that jump-started his heart, and he decided to share it with others. If I collapsed here right now, people would come up to me, and they would start administering CPR. They would breathe life into me. They would start to get my heart going. And yet, so often we leave this place, and we see people who are spiritually dead, and we lack the courage. We're like this church at the beginning of the passage, just sitting huddled together, not really going out and doing the great commission that our Lord called us to do. We need to have more courage than that. We need to learn the lesson of Pentecost. Also, a quick note as we wind down here, especially for those who track the headlines, especially because the headlines of this week, we Christians often worry or can get worried about living in the last days. You know, especially as Israel starts to get bombed. Maybe this could be the end. Cheer up, I have some good news for you. We've been living in the last days now for roughly 2,000 years. The fiery day of Pentecost, according to the beginning of verse 17 here, sets in motion the last days. Paul also writes in this way in the New Testament. Even John, in that book of Revelation you like to make guesswork out of, begins in chapter 1 by saying, now is the time of the last days. And really to understand what they are referencing is the fact that we are in the final harvest season. There's only one other festival left. The last festival is the festival where both the fruit and the grain have all been collected. The great harvest has come and it's time to celebrate the end of the Lord's harvest. The great wedding supper of the Lamb. So, less headline following. We've already been in the last days for 2,000 years. We only have one more festival to come. And then... After we are done and the whole power of the Holy Spirit is done breathing life into this world, giving the fire of life to this world, the remainder of the field will be burned. It's of no use to the one who continues to seek unity, peace, and to purify the world to do anything else but that. And so that's why we need to soberly consider Pentecost. Now is the time of the last days where God has set believers' tongues on fire and given them the breath of life in order to share with others that can restart hearts, both women and men, from every tribe and every nation. Have you recently tried to perform spiritual CPR, Christian? Have you tried to start somebody's heart once again? There is still time before the harvest fully comes to a close. God has given us the power to restart hearts, to share with others the good news, the promise that all those who call upon the Lord shall be saved. Amen? Amen. And now is a moment for a special charge. So the rest of you can just plug your ears, okay? (laughs) To Bruce. Bruce, my brother in Christ and co-laborer for the gospel here at Old Goshen Hoppin Reformed Church. I'm going to begin with a few questions directed towards you. I don't expect you to know the answer. I hope you don't know the answer. It makes a better preaching point. Uh, But I'm going to ask you five questions. Do you know John Bowen by any chance? Yes. How about John Faber? 
How about Robert Court? How about Thomas Brendel? All right, one more. That's it. You know Charles Brown, not the comic strip. That's Charlie Brown. Charles Brown. Okay. Well, let me explain where I got these questions from. I was on a, a daddy-daughter date on Monday. We went to miniature golf, and then after we went to miniature golf, we went to Freddy's, frozen custard, right? Something like that. Bruce introduced me to the place, and of course, he saw that I was, I was too petite, too slim, so he introduced me to cheese curds there, <laughs> brine cheese curds, and I was sharing this glorious thing with my daughter um, in the store. And I'm looking up at the walls of Freddy's, and I'm going, hmm. He has all these, this Freddy guy has all kind of like personal pictures in his, in his restaurant. And it's a national chain. And, and I mean, he, he's lived an amazing life. He was a soldier and, and a war veteran. Um, it seems like probably World War II, so that should be commended. And so you have pictures of him on vacation in the Philippines. And, and you have these photos, and I start to think, it still just feels a little weird. It feels a little weird. And so that's when I kind of thought about my charge for you. Eating cheese curds, looking at Freddie's picture at the frozen custard spot. Which leads me to answer the questions I asked you. John Bohm was the first pastor of this church, which was founded in 1730. John Faber was the pastor who served here both before and during the Revolutionary War through the majority of that war as uh, Americans fought to establish a new nation here. Robert Court was the pastor during the start of the Civil War here at Old Goshenhoppen. Thomas Brendel was the pastor who served during World War I and Spanish influenza. And the last one, Charles Brown, was not the comic book character, but he was the pastor who served here during World War II. While all their ministries took place during remarkable moments of history, for the vast majority of us, maybe Bruce, did you, you probably know? Did you know the names? No? Oh, you, Greg knew them? Good job, Greg. We had no idea who they were. And yet still, we can undeniably say they are a part of old Gosh and Hoppin's story. They've helped serve this very foundation even though their individual stories have been lost to us in history. And that's okay. And really, in many ways, that's exactly how it should be. Even today, we heard a passage where Peter gets to give the first sermon of the New Testament church. It was an amazing sermon, a Christ-centered sermon that we just skimmed the surface of. And yet the passage was ultimately not about Peter. Why would it be? Peter's just a simple man. What Peter understood and what every godly pastor who's followed him since has understood is, who, is that it's not about our name. It's not about our image. That none of that needs to continue to prevail in this fading and often forgetful world. It's not that our name might someday adorn the sidewall there at Old Goshenhoppen Reformed Church. Because as we've already seen, it's going to be forgotten. But it's in the one in whom we know, who has power and his name will rise above every name in this life and the next, 
And because we're connected to his name, we will have a life in the next, and our name will never be forgotten to history. It's him that, brother, you and I need to strive to continue to be united in proclaiming here, both in life's storms, as we saw in the front of the bulletin, but also in the seasons of good weather. Let us strive mutually to keep ourselves from all self-pride, ego, and vanity and division for his name's sake. Because it's only his name that will stand the test of time. It's only his name that will be remembered and hollowed at the end of this passing life. Amen? Brother? Amen.